mascarillista. Today's scripture reading is select verses in Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. I don't know about you, but when she was reading uh, from the passage and it's quoting from Isaiah, um, immediately Handel's Messiah comes to my mind. Uh, if you don't know that, um, it's old school, um, but it is beautiful music that comes straight from um, that section that she read from Isaiah. I want to pray, and we'll dive into God's Word. Lord, uh, grateful for this morning, for the folks uh, who are here, Lord, that we, we gather, coming from all kind of weeks, all kind of backgrounds. Some of us, Lord, are at our wit's end. Meet, meet those folks who are there at their wit's end. Some of us are coming off a wave of encouragement. Lord, meet them in that place and hit their hearts with gratitude. Some of us uh, are coming in here thankful that no one can know our secret thoughts, our secret sins, and yet you do, Lord. So I pray that you might be the God of all grace, that your spirit would bring conviction, and yet also um, bring restoration as we confess our sins, as we confess our need for you. And Lord, none of us is qualified on our own to stand in your presence, to open your word, to understand it. You have made the way. You are the qualified one, Lord Jesus, who has therefore qualified us to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom, your own kingdom, or as Paul says, the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I pray, Father, that um, there might be a gratitude that marks all of us and a receptivity to hear from you through your word, through Dr. Luke's pen, uh, through whatever um, you have me share, that your spirit would have his way, illumine our hearts and minds to your truth, and particularly the wonder of who Jesus is, our Lord and Savior. Find us attentive now in our affections following, saying you are worthy of all of our praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series that we began last week called Grassroots God. It will be, we're beginning now, we began a sort of a pre-series message last week, overviewing the Gospel of Luke in a moment. We'll kind of hit uh, a couple of those highlights. For one, some of us weren't here, and like all of us, um, we have, even the one preaching and teaching, we have minds like sieves, right? Things just fall out, so we'll revisit that a bit. But this is um, the section in Dr. Luke's Gospel 
of his early Jesus's early ministry, uh, mostly around Galilee, um, before he's going to head to Jerusalem, and that'll be the next section we get to when he journeys to Jerusalem. But I'm calling it Grassroots God because not as much today, but after today, we'll begin seeing Jesus in his hometown or in his home region, um, the rest of most of the rest of this section, where he will be in the the backwater towns, he'll be in the no-name places, uh, he'll be particularly with those who are unimpressive and on the outside. And we're going to see a little bit of that um, today because the question I put, if you get our email, how is Jesus qualified to qualify us? I prayed it, but Paul says that in Colossians 1, that we ought to be grateful. He didn't say we ought to. He says, gratefully giving thanks to him who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The only shot we have of being put right with God is if Jesus himself is qualified. So that's, if you're going to fall asleep on me for the next few minutes, that's what you need to hear. And then we're going to see that through Dr. Luke. But I want to start with an uglier picture. If you put this next one up here, um, this, yes, it's in my house with a simple closet door behind me. Um, this <clears throat> symbolizes something that I spend quite a, invest quite a bit of my time in. We have five sons, and with that, um, that means that I can either watch from the stands or I can be in the fray on the bench or whatever. And so typically I choose to be on the bench, which usually, if you know me, if you've been on one of my teams, I don't actually sit on the bench ever. Just stand, <clears throat> and you'll hear me. Just like up here, I'm just running my mouth, Okay. But with five sons, I've had quite a, a lot of opportunity to do that with Allen Sports Association. Here's the one thing. I'm not, a quali- <clears throat> I'm not qualified to be a coach because I'm a son of a coach, although I am. I'm not qualified to be a coach because I've got just unbelievable athletic ability um, or just phenomenal like um, John Wooden, Mike Krzyzewski, coaching prowess. It's none of that. The number one thing that qualifies me and that I must have in order to coach a team and to coach in any game is my coach's identification badge. That's what this is. Um, back in the day, I had to have multiple ones. Soccer, always rogue, want to do their own thing. So it was like this thing around my neck. I had one ASA for all the other sports and then soccer. And then sometimes soccer had a second badge. I don't know why. Um, and it just pulling on your neck. Well, now, thankfully, they've gone virtual. So this is virtual badge. That's me. <clears throat> you show up without a badge to a game. You show up without being able to show that uh, to the ref on the on your phone, you will not coach. Sometimes you can get away with it, but no, you're not supposed to, especially in our world today, right? We always want to know that whoever our son or daughter is with has been checked out, okay? What does this badge do? It identifies me with my team, and it shows that I have completed a background check. I have passed the sniff test. <laughs> That's important because this gives confidence to those parents, grandparents who will place their trust in me. And it's ASA's way of saying that Buddy or Lawrence, Lyles Lawrence, is qualified because their process asks three questions of me. Will I submit to their plan and process? Do I come from where I say I come from? Like, is this legit my name? The addresses I give them, is that where I'm from? They do that background check. And then do I have the moral track record to be trusted with the responsibility and relationship that I will have with these helpless children as their coach? Yes, the younger they are, the more helpless they are. Well, today in Luke 3, if you're not there, go ahead and turn with me. We're doing a background check on Jesus with Dr. Luke. Doctors are able to do these checks. They do physicals and other things. They... They take a look at us, right? They give us more than a sniff test. But Luke gives us a background check on Jesus to see whether or not he is capable and he is qualified to be God's man and God's redemption plan to see if he's capable and qualified to be our Savior. 
and to be trusted as our Lord. So if you're if you not already gotten there in Luke 3, where Lisa read most of, we're going to dive into a couple spots because we're also going in part of chapter 4. Luke uh, 3, look again at verses 2 and 3. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, so uh, in, in, sorry, in verse 1, Luke gives, here's all the big boys on the block, governors, tetrarchs, all that kind of stuff in the region, because he wants you to know in history, this is when Jesus arrived. This is who was in charge in each region. And remember, Luke is writing his gospel to a universal, to a Gentile audience, primarily Gentile believers. And so he sets that stage there, but now he's getting closer to the Jew, what matters to Jewish folks. Who's high priest? Who's in charge there? He says it's Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, where? In the wilderness. I'll just talk louder if I need to. The word of God came to Anna, Anna, uh, excuse me, to, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To demonstrate that Jesus is capable and qualified to be Messiah, which our word Christ comes from what Messiah means, the anointed one. So uh, this is a freebie. When you're on Jeopardy, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, It actually should be Jesus, comma, oh, sorry, I'm, y'all are reading this way. Jesus, comma, the Christ, or the Messiah. We're just saying Jesus, Messiah, okay? This, one and the same, Christ and Messiah, but it's an office. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a God assignment for him. And Luke wants to demonstrate he's qualified to be that Messiah. He's going to take us through four scenes, taking us to the wilderness, which is where we are right now, to a river in that wilderness, to a tree, and back to a desert wilderness. That's what we're going to look at. Luke 3 begins with John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, who is Jesus' forerunner. That means the one who goes before him. I want you to note two things. He says he's the son of Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Okay, John is the son of a priest. What's expected of the son of a priest for his job? You become a priest. Your dad's a carpenter. You become a carpenter. Your dad's a soldier, you become a soldier. That's the way it was. And John's a priest, or he's the son of a priest, expected to be a priest. What does a priest do? They represent God to the people and the people to God. So they try to get it right with what's God's message to the people, and then they plea on behalf of the people with God. Incidentally, we are all now in Christ a kingdom of priests. We are the priesthood of believers. That's another message. Second thing to note, where does a priest do his work? In the temple, in Jerusalem. Where is John? He's in the wilderness. He's far away from the temple. He's way outside of Jerusalem. This is very important. Look at verse 7. Who came to him? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, he's calling them unclean, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't bank on your family tree that you come from Abraham, that that puts you on the inside. That's what he's saying. He said, God can raise up children from these stones. The ax is laid at the root of the tree, it's about ready to chop, chop, chop. So there are large, large crowds. And in those crowds is a mixture of religious insiders who've come to say, what in the world's going on? Who's this guy and what he's wearing? It's a strange deal going on. We want to hear what he has to say and who is he talking about? Um, you have those who are just part of the crowds. You have tax collectors. We saw that um, last week. We're going to see it a bunch. Tax collectors were hated people. Just think of whoever you think is the seediest, greediest, better watch out they have an angle to bilk you of money or time or something. That's a tax collector. 
the tax collectors and soldiers. Soldiers also particularly would have been Roman soldiers. They would have been Gentiles. They would have been considered outsiders in terms of God's people. Okay, So it's, it's a mix of insiders who come in to check this out and aren't quite sure what to do with him, but particularly outsiders. That's who's coming out to him. So I wanted to zoom in on those details because those are very important as to Luke saying, I want you to know that Jesus is capable and qualified, first of all, because his forerunner was one who was prophesied, that he would have a forerunner. He'd smooth the way, just like you would for a king coming into town. You'd go out and just mow that forest down and let them have a a clear path. You'd make it smooth. It's a voice calling out to the wilderness. That's John the baptizer, John the Baptist. So already fitting into God's promise and plan, already fitting to say, yes, you have credentials. You have a forerunner who is going before you and saying you're coming and saying that you're God's one who is mightier than me. He's also outside. So just for a moment, we've zoomed in on those details. I want us to zoom out. You can put up the slide with um, Luke's purpose. So this is Luke. There are four Gospels. The reason why we have four and not just one, we might be like, well, why do we have that? Do they contradict each other? No, they're all four giving us portraits of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic. That means see the same thing. They all see him as Messiah. And we, instead of Messiah, we say what? Jesus the, I'm just seeing if you're listening, the Christ. They all say that. Matthew sees him as Messiah the King. Mark sees him as a Messiah the Suffering Servant from Isaiah 53. Luke, writing to a Gentile audience, says, I want you to know that he's Messiah the Son of Man. Meaning, he's not just the King of Kings, he's the person of persons. He is fully human. And he can relate to every single one of us. That's going to come back through in the end here. But he wants us to know that he's, Jesus is Messiah, the Son of Man. And particularly, he's writing to reassure believers. Theophilus means lover of God. He's most likely a Gentile who's come to faith in Jesus. And now he's part of this community. And we said in the book of Acts, you see multiple times they're going at it, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews want the Gentiles to come a little more Jewish first so they can be in the frat. And Theophilus and others would have been a little bit on shaky ground, a little wobbly, like, wait, yeah, I know they were, they were the ones that God chose, but I feel like I believed in Jesus and that made me part. And that's a counterintuitive community that Jesus has, has started. Am I sure? And in three, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Theophilus, I did this. There are other gospels, but I went ahead and I, I listened to those eyewitness accounts and I did a very careful and thorough search and I compiled a very orderly account, Theophilus. Why? Verse four, so that, so that you may know with certainty the things that you've been taught. Another way of saying that is so that you can know in your bone of bones, your heart of heart, be reassured, be confident because your faith and trust is in him and not some old broken system or in yourself, you've placed your trust in the right one. In fact, the entire gospel is one in which to say to all outsiders, yep, have the sure footing that God wants, that you are a son or a daughter of him, not because of your own merit, because of his mercy and grace. And look how much that mercy and grace gets extended through Luke's gospel to the outsider to the people that most of us would be a little sketch whether or not we'd let them in the door of this place. But we looked at the key chapter last week of Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, plural. He says, I want you to have the sure footing, know for certain that Jesus is that one who's capable and qualified as God's man, fulfilling God's plan perfectly, And he's a suitable and sympathetic Savior. He's come for the outsider. And so that's his purpose in writing. He wants to not just give sure footing to Theophilus and others like him, but also he knows that others will come to read this gospel who are outsiders. And he wants it to be a delightful surprise. 
You know, you go in and you think one thing, oh, this is a man of God. It's going to be like we can barely breathe. There's all these rules and all these holier than thou. And, and Jesus was approachable. Jesus was winsome. Jesus had people amazed at how he taught, and he didn't teach like the, the, old, the OG Pharisees who footnoted everything. They're like, he has some authority. There's something about him, and he doesn't shun me. He invites me in. So sure footing for us who are believers, but a surprise to others who may say, well, I thought Jesus would be this way. He says, no, 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 I don't fit in your box. So that's an overview. Let's go back to Luke 3. We see in 3, 1 to 20, this one who goes before. There's a slide for that, guys. Uh, the one who goes before. Is John the Baptist. And what is he doing? He's preparing the people. This fulfills Isaiah 43 through 5, which is in our verses 4 through 6, that he would, he would plow that ground. He's fulfilling that. But he's also, if you want to take a, a left to Luke 1, you'll actually see the account. Speaking of surprise, Zechariah was met by an angel when he had his one time, one shot, to go in and he's met by an angel which scared him freaked him out and then the message is well you're going to have a son and his name is going to be John and verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1 says and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what John's assignment was. In, John, in Luke 3, we see that's what John the baptizer is doing. He is going before him to prepare the way. And the way you prepare the way is not going, hey, it's all right. Just live how you want to live and he'll, he'll be all right. He's saying, no, we need to change our minds. We need to change direction of our lives. That's what repentance is, is to change the mind and also to change the direction. Quit going after uh, all these other false gods. Quit trying to scheme and build life for your own agenda. Ignoring God, blaspheming God, forgetting God. He says, turn, turn from your sins turn from other gods and really it's to go back to where we missed it and again put your eyes on god the one who promised to send messiah so these people are coming out to him to to hear his message and then they're hitting the hearts they're convicted and they're repenting they're changing mind and changing direction turning back to the lord and saying i am a sinner I need a Savior, and I believe He is sending our Deliverer, our Savior, our Messiah. And what they're saying is, we believe that He is coming. We don't know when, but we want to have our hearts ready because we know that He is coming to a readied people, and that's John's assignment. Notice also uh, John's wardrobe and lifestyle they shook people's categories for a son of a priest. Not only is he not in Jerusalem, but he wears camel hair. Just think itchy. I used to have a pair of burlap shorts in college. I don't know why. Itchy. They were lying, though. They weren't that itchy. Camel's hair signaled mourning over sin and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and corruption in society in general. Listen to this. Luke wants us to know that John went outside the old system, outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, to call people out of it, to call people to repent, to call people to turn their eyes again to the Lord in expectation and in need of their sins to be forgiven, in need of a Savior. He's also proclaiming the one who's to come. And God's plan can be misunderstood. John can be misunderstood. Like, why are you here, son of priests, and you're wearing this, and you eat that, and what's the deal? It can be misunderstood. 
He also knows that there are going to be those, Jesus will know this, and is willing to be misunderstood. I don't fit your categories for Messiah. Even his own disciples, right? Peter's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, well, I'm going to go die. And Peter didn't like that. It didn't fit his box. He wasn't six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in a golden diaper, which is cartoonish, but we have our own version of that. John's preaching, he doesn't fit your categories. Jesus will say, I'm not going to fit your categories. But I've come to fulfill what God has me to fulfill. John is preaching that. He knows, verses 7 through 9 particularly, there are going to be those who don't get it. Or, but they should get it. And then he knows there's going to be those who don't get it, but they can if they would mark, be marked by being ready and teachable, humble and confessing their need. Repentance and teachability, saying, what should we do? What should we do? They say that three times in here. And John really is wanting them to believe first. That puts you in right relationship with God. Then be baptized as a symbol of your um, identification of the people who are hoping and waiting on God's provision and promise. And then the forgiveness of sins that can help us walk in fellowship with him. John brought a prophetic protest. The way he dressed, the way he ate, when he was outside, everything about him was outside. It was a prophetic protest, but John was not a pessimist. He was not a cynic. His message, just like in Isaiah where this comes from, was a message of hope and comfort to a distressed people. Again, Handel's Messiah, comfort ye. That's what Isaiah 40 begins, comfort ye, O comfort ye, my people. Why? Because your God is going to bring the hope that he's promised. Just wait, just hold on. And John brings that message of hope and comfort to this distressed people who come in. They're distressed. They want to come out and hear what God has for them. And he says, I want you to look for the one who would come who's mightier than me. In fact, I shouldn't even tie his sandals. Yet he is the one who is our hope embodied. So let's look at now Jesus, the mightier one who is to come, God's hope, promised hope to us embodied. Now he shows up. We go from the desert to the river that's out there in that wilderness. Verses 21 and 22, and Jesus is going to be baptized. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. You need to know that um, for them, two or three witnesses were needed to be confirmed of anything. God, the, God the Father is the voice saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. This is, think of an inauguration. He's saying, I'm inaugurating you into the office of, of son slash messiahship. He already has been the son, but he's recognizing him publicly. We don't know how many people heard it, but we know for sure John and Jesus did. I don't know who saw the, you know, descending of the Holy Spirit, but that's the second witness, God the Father, God the, God the Spirit descending on him like a dove to certify Jesus is qualified. Jesus is God's chosen one, and he's the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Now, this baptism of the people did not save them. Uh, because what baptism means, literally think the word identify. When, they would, when you would baptize a garment, you would dip Let's say this shirt, mostly white, you dip it in blue ink, and once it comes out, it's never the same. It will be now identified with that which, within which it was dipped. Okay? So the people, they were being baptized to say, we want to identify with God, we want to turn back to God, identify with him, the one who had a plan and a promise, and though we don't see everything happening, we are confessing our sin. We need a Savior, and we're looking for you. That's what they're doing. We're identifying ourselves. We're being baptized into this community. 
a readied people, a readied remnant of Israel looking for the promised Messiah. That's what they're doing. Now, here's a tricky question. Why did Jesus get baptized? I think it's a really good question for us to wrestle with because if we think that baptism saves us from our sins, why was Jesus baptized? He had no sin. Matthew quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. He didn't become sin in the river, although that, that river's nasty. I'm telling you, the Jordan River is nasty. Whatever white baptismal robe, it will come out like a rust color. And you'll be like, hmm, I think I need some antibiotics. Um, but Jesus, he didn't, he didn't have sin. Why is he baptized? Because baptism is about identification. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to the temple to call out the religious leaders. He goes to the outside with a prophet in camel hair, eating locusts and honey, a son of a priest doing priestly work, but outside the old system, outside the old city, outside the temple. This is very huge. And Jesus says, I'm not coming to identify with the old system I'm going to fulfill it fully. I didn't come to, um, he'll say it later, to unite myself with the righteous, the self-assured, although deceived. He says, I'm coming to be with the outsiders who know they shouldn't have a relationship with God, who know they've blown it, who know that they have turned their back on God and would use God at a moment's notice to get what they really want. He says, I've come to identify with you outsiders. And so that's why he comes to be baptized. He comes to identify with sinners. He comes to identify with this believing remnant, and he comes to be inducted into his office of Messiah. Matthew 3 says this was to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew also gives a witness to the, um, to the baptism. Mark mentions it. And so Jesus, in his baptism, is also shown to be certified, verified, qualified by the Father and the Spirit, and because of the, the witness of Scripture, John the baptizer being the one who was preparing the people and proclaiming the one to come, and doing the baptisms, Jesus comes to identify with them. He's fulfilling everything that God said would happen 700 years before it's happening. And I, I just want you to be encouraged. That's what he's wanting for Theophilus. Be encouraged. Be on the sure footing. Even if you've been blowing it, even if you've been blowing off God for a, a while now. But if you are in Christ, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even that is baptism language. You've been baptized into him in his death. So you can be raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we do in baptisms to give that picture and reminder be reassured. Stand again on the sure footing. Yes, confess your sin. Repent of your sin. But know that it's sure footing, not because of you, not because you get a, have a flawless confession of sin, but because of the one to whom you're confessing, because of the one who came to identify with them and therefore came to identify with all of us, which brings us to his, go from the river now to the tree, his roots, his family tree, if you will. We're not going to read all of it because unlike Lisa, I may mispronounce some of these names. Uh, but Luke 3, 23 through 38 is Jesus' genealogy by Luke. If you wanted to really, really, really study, you can go look and there's a, there's a genealogy in Matthew 1. The differences are important because Matthew is presenting him as Messiah the King to a Jewish audience who want to know, we think we we believed in him as king, but where's this kingdom? Why didn't he come? What, you know, the Romans are still in charge. What happened? And Matthew's writing and saying, no, no, you didn't miss it. He is Messiah the king. And he traces uh, Jesus through the family of Abraham. He doesn't list everybody. He's very artful in it. He gives you, you know, about seven, and then he comes to, and he'll, he'll mention David and Abraham. That's important to the Jews. But to those of us who are outside of that, who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews, Luke is saying, I want you to know that he is qualified, certified to be our Savior, God's Messiah, because he comes from the right line. 
And Matthew traces the legal descent of Jesus through the line of Joseph. Jesus' family tree here in Luke traces the physical descent of Jesus through the line of Mary. That's why in verse 23 he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. That strongly hints at virgin birth. Joseph isn't the daddy. But Joseph, by law, being the husband of Mary, therefore Jesus, you know, he's his earthly father. But he's actually tracing the physical descent of Jesus through the line of Mary. And he goes, all son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, he gets to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What's Luke doing? Jesus is not just king. Jesus is the son of man, which is a messianic royal title. But he's also saying he's the person of persons. He's the ultimate human being. He is the one who can relate to every single one of us because every single one of us, our family tree can go back to Adam. And then after son of Adam, he says, son of God, which is referring to Adam, but it also helps leverage then into chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, which is where we see, not, we go from the family tree now back into a desert. And we're going to go from first Adam, son of Adam, who blew it when he was tempted in a plush paradise. That was Adam's scene. We're going to go now to a desert scene where Jesus is hungry. After 40 days of not eating and fasting, we're going to go from first Adam who blew it in that plush paradise to second Adam who is tempted in the desert and yet he overcomes temptation. Look at verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Very important. Um, you'll see that in other Gospels, particularly for Luke, because he's saying Jesus is fully human. At times, Luke wants us to know he didn't just go on his own terms. He submitted and yielded to the Spirit leading him which is also what you and I, if we're in Christ, we have his spirit, we can yield to his spirit. He says he was led by the spirit, where? Into the wilderness. Doesn't seem like a place where the spirit would lead somebody into troubled times or an area where there'd be struggle. Into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Look, It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, notice that, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written. And now Satan's really good at this. He takes a verse and he twists it. He will, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him and said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The three temptations, stone to bread. Jesus, why don't you exert your rights and your will over the fathers? What's at stake there? Just satisfy an appetite versus obedience to God. It's God, the Spirit, who led him there to pass this test. Christ's response, Deuteronomy 8.3, to show that obedience to God's will is better, it's, which is uh, revealed in God's word, is better. He says, shall not live by bread alone. Then um, the next temptation, he says, look, I'll give this all to you. You just got to worship me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The worship of God would be compromised. And continual service would be due to Satan. He says, worship the Lord and serve him only. <clears throat> and then lastly, he says, hey, why don't you test this out? I mean, let's let, why don't you prove that you're that valuable to the Father? Why don't you prove that God would come and rescue? Here's some, here's some verses. 
What's at stake is Jesus' confidence and trust in God the Father. He responds, you shouldn't put God to the test. We shouldn't make experiments of any kind with God. It would reveal doubt of him and his goodness. He's not going to prove his sonship that way. Now, here's what I want to say. Um, There's some good stuff here. It can be models for us. When you face temptation, when I face temptation, two, two things that are very key. Yielding to the Holy Spirit and his power, because you can't do it on, on your own. I can't resist temptation on my own. We are temptable. You are human. Whether your weak area is greed, gossip, lust, too much time at the buffet line, whatever it is, we all have areas of weakness and even maybe an area of strength. Sometimes in our pride, we can be tempted in that area. We can rely on the Holy Spirit if we're believers. And for sure, his, his word needs to be that which informs and gives us a grid. I'm saying all that to say that is true. He models that for us. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not for us to have a good moral lesson for Buddy to give you the three easy keys to overcome temptation. The point of this passage for Luke's purposes are, the point is to, to demonstrate that Jesus is capable and qualified to be Messiah, to be the Son of Man, Messiah the Son of Man, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's showing that he's qualified. He's not just qualified because he's the one who came to fulfill what John was preaching, which fulfilled Isaiah, but he's also come because he's from the right line. He's qualified. And he can relate not only to his Jewish lineage, but to all. And lastly, he's qualified. He's capable. He doesn't just have the the royal right. He has the moral right to be king and Messiah because he overcame all temptation that was thrown his way. That's the point of Luke 4, 1 to 13. Not wrong to take some lessons, to take some modeling from. Absolutely not wrong. But I want you to hear that, that Luke is trying to give us sure footing that's not in and of ourselves. It's sure footing when we're standing on or standing in Christ. And Jesus is that qualified Christ. He's saying, I want that to be surprising to those who are outsiders, but I want it to be reassuring and sure footing to those of us who are insiders. Now, the last couple of slides. What do these passages point us to? I'm going to give it in two categories. First of all, they both show that he's qualified. That shows that he's qualified. The next one, there we go. Showing us that God's plan, all that he promised before, and God's man, who is Jesus, can be trusted. He is the sovereign Lord. On my little ID badge, coach's badge, it's just, it has a little green thing. So we're in the green because Jesus fulfilled, John fulfilled God's plan, and he was God's man, as forerunner, and Jesus is the mightier one to come that John proclaimed. And he fulfilled all righteousness. He never sinned. He never broke the law. Matthew tells us he fulfilled the law perfectly. And so therefore, God's plan and God's man can be trusted. Jesus is sovereign Lord. But the next one, Jesus identifies with us, yet without sin. Why does this matter that he's qualified? Why does it matter that he's the one that God promised and and he came and he... He identified with these people in the desert who were outsiders. Why does it matter that he came from the right line? Why does it matter that he overcame temptation? Because if he's not qualified, we are not qualified. And he says, I came for folks like you. I went out of the old system, out of Jerusalem, out of the temple to people who were distressed and hurting and hopeless. He says, those are the ones for whom I went out to be with. In John 1, 
Therefore, he's a suitable, sympathetic Savior. John 1, this is John's account of the baptism. He says, the next day when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And that Son of God came to outsiders. Next one. He also identifies with us, just like from the genealogy. We see that he goes all the way back to Adam. Therefore, he can relate to all of us. And yet, first Adam blew it. First Adam sinned, which is why he says in Romans 5, 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's all of us. He says, even so, through the obedience of the one in the temptation in the wilderness and beyond, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Your hope is not in getting your nose clean, dotting religious I's, crossing religious T's. It's in the one who through his obedience, righteousness was imputed to the many who don't deserve it. The next one. Therefore, he, though he was tempted and didn't sin, he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what's at stake. He knows exactly what is tempting to you. And therefore, he can be empathetic. He can be sympathetic. Hebrews 4 invites you and me to know that today. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Next one. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, with sure footing, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go back one slide. I just want you to see Jesus came out to identify with sinners and outsiders. He fulfilled perfectly the law, He overcame temptation. He was willing to go to the cross so that you and I could be purchased with his blood. But if it wasn't qualified blood, if it didn't count, then we're in a hopeless place, but we're not. And he says, but I also understand the cravings you have. I understand those points of weakness. I understand what you're tempted to do later today or tomorrow. And rather than just kind of drift into it, he says, I'm here. Come to me. I can sympathize. I want to. My mercy is tailor-made for you. My grace is available to you. Now, this last slide, last slides, um, if the worship team would come up, we're going to close with singing what I want sung at my funeral. If the rest of my family is not around, um, I stand amazed. That's what we're going to sing in just a moment. But the point of this passage was not to go through genealogy, not to give you some nuggets to win on Jeopardy. The point of it is so that we might have sure footing in the one that we call Savior and Lord, that he's the one God promised, and he's the one who fulfilled all of what God says Here's the sniff test. He's qualified. He's from the right line. He's, he's been promised uh, by John the baptizer. He overcame temptation. He is capable and qualified. And our only hope is in him. But because we are in him, let that ignite our hope once again. Let us sing with gratitude to this one who is worthy. Would you put up, would you stand? And we're going to read this. No, I'll read it. Sorry. Read this because I just want you to see in Revelation, the scene in heaven. It says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on, uh, on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven that's, or on earth, that's you and me either, or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he comes from the right family line. 
has overcome. He, he overcame temptation. And he overcame the death that he died for you and for me and was raised. It's overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is king and he is Messiah, but he can relate to every single one of us. That's why we're going to sing, I stand amazed. Stand amazed that that king would come down and have anything to do with us, that he would die in your place and mine. That's why it says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. He had an address. He had flesh. I want us to sing this, and then we'll be dismissed. He is that amazing, and he is available. I just want to say, who you and I know Jesus to be will define your confidence in Jesus. And also the amount of sure footing through which or by which we'll navigate this world. I just pray, if you are a believer, that he's restoking your heart this morning to return to him. If you don't know him, we just sang a line that says, "Twill be my joy through the ages. I want that desperately for you. To have that security, have that resonate within your own soul. You are his, not because of your merit, but because of his amazing, amazing grace. Pray that you stood amazed here to sing, but you will walk amazed all this week at his grace to you in your life. And may you extend it to others. Have a great week. Amen.